to welcome our guest presenter that we have tonight. Elisa Childers never thought that she would question her Christian faith. She'd been raised in a Christian home where she had seen her mom and dad literally feed the hungry, clothe the homeless, and love the outcast. In fact, she had dedicated her whole life to leading worship as a part of a Christian band, Zoe Girl. But all of that was deeply challenged when she met a progressive pastor who called himself a hopeful agnostic. Her book, Another Gospel, describes the journey that Elisa took over several years as she wrestled with questions that struck at the core of her Christian faith and simply found the truth. Elisa's story may be your own or that of someone you love, or perhaps you've encountered the ideas of progressive Christianity in your everyday life and just aren't sure how to respond. Elisa is a worship artist, she's an author, podcaster, and national speaker on this particular topic at hand. So it is my pleasure and privilege to welcome Elisa Childers to our E&E training to teach us how to defend and answer progressive Christianity. So welcome, Elisa. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I, I thought what we could do tonight, uh, you know, when we're doing training, I really want to help equip you to be able to interact with progressive Christianity, to understand it, and to to know how to answer it biblically and, and how to love people in your life who might be you know, persuaded by it a little bit. So we're going to do a bit of that tonight. And how we're going to do that is I'm going to share just a tiny bit of my story. I go much deeper into the story in my book, but uh, I'll share my story, why this matters to me so much. And then we're going to dive deep uh, into basically what progressive Christians believe about the Bible, because I think that is really the core of why some of their beliefs are the way they are. So we're going to talk through my story, a little bit about defining progressive Christianity, what it is, and then um, from there, we'll go into the uh, the Bible, the view of the Bible. Okay, so uh, first of all, for those of you who are unfamiliar with my story, uh, as, as she mentioned, as Allison mentioned, I grew up in a Christian home, had great Christian parents. As far back as I can remember, I loved Jesus and I believed that the Bible was God's word. I couldn't have told you why that was the case intellectually, but I just I just kind of knew it in my heart and that was enough for me. I didn't really feel like um, like I had a lot of intellectual questions about that. And so uh, going through the time with Zoe Girl and all that, so after Zoe Girl came off the road, I was really uh, uh, interested in this church we were attending, my husband and I. And it was the kind of place where I felt really comfortable. I felt very accepted. I didn't feel judged or put on a pedestal. And the pastor was very intellectual. We really liked um, the intellectual approach that he had to the sermons there. And so... Uh, after about eight months of attending this church, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller study and discussion group that he said would be like seminary. If you go to this class, you will come out on the other side with a seminary level education. And this sounded really exciting to me. And so in the context of this smaller group, the pastor basically admitted to us that he was agnostic. He called himself a hopeful agnostic. And throughout the four months or so that I stayed in that class, just about everything that I had ever believed about God and Jesus and the Bible, all of these beliefs that I had treasured, that I had held so dear, were basically kind of put on this 
intellectual chopping block and they were deconstructed. They were picked apart. They were explained away. And in many cases, these beliefs were discarded. Now, at the time, I didn't know how to answer any of the claims that, that this pastor was making. And the thing that was extra confusing about it is that this was a pastor that I had really come to trust and respect. And so it was very confusing. And I would Google stuff and I would try to refute what he was saying, but I didn't do a really good job about that. But after we left uh, and I was kind of isolated, that's when my faith took a nosedive and I went through my own faith crisis, really my own deconstruction. I don't know how many of you have heard that phrase, but we're going to talk a bit about that in relationship to progressive Christianity uh, in a moment. But my faith was deconstructed by this pastor and it threw me into a crisis. And so long story short, God used apologetics to help reconstruct my faith. I went back to the beginning, tried to discover what historic Christianity is, what what are the, the core beliefs, the, the bones of this faith we have that has made Christianity unique in the world for 2000 years and continues to define it. Because it has to mean something, right? You can't just make it up or change it and still call it Christian Christian or Christianity. And so I did that and the Lord reconstructed my faith. And so it's just thrilling to get to be here to, to maybe help other people who might be touched by this in some way. Now, the relevance to progressive Christianity is that years after my husband and I left this church, the church itself went on to identify itself as a progressive Christian community. Now, at the time, I had never heard that phrase progressive Christianity before, but I kind of instinctively knew what it was because it was what we were talking about in that class. And so they took the apostle or it was the apostles and Nicene creeds, I think, that they had on their website. They took those down. They replaced those with a new creed that they wrote, and they were just off to the races as a progressive Christian church. So at that point, I thought I need to really research this movement because it's very hard to define. So progressive Christianity is very hard to define. And that's because generally speaking, progressive Christians aren't creedal, meaning there isn't a list of beliefs that you have to affirm to call yourself a progressive Christian. Whereas historic Christianity has always been creedal. From the beginning, we have creeds going back to within just a couple of years of Jesus' death that defined Christianity. And creeds were a way for Christians to say, hey, let's get on the same page about what we believe about the most important things. And so, but progressive Christianity doesn't really work that way. So it can be very confusing to figure out how do we define what this movement is. And so the way I like to define it is not so much by what they affirm, but by what they deny. Okay, so that's really what we have to keep in mind because as I did this research and I read the progressive Christian books and I listened to their podcasts and I drilled down into their blog posts and all of that, what I discovered was that although there's a broad spectrum of beliefs that fall under the umbrella of progressive Christianity, it's very fluid in what they would affirm, and they don't all affirm the same things. They're very united in what they deny. Okay, so if you take historic Christian beliefs, progressive Christians, and, and I'm talking about the leaders of the movement, not necessarily every person in the pew, but the messaging that's coming from the thought leaders that are leading the, the, the movement, they are united in what they deny. 
And what that would be is if we trace the narrative arc of the gospel, okay, the gospel is the good news. It's the proclamation of, of God's plan of salvation for mankind. And so I'm just going to trace through that, and then we're going to go into some definitions that are coming from some progressive Christians themselves so we know what they are saying about what they are and who they are. So if we look historically at the gospel as the narrative arc of God's redemptive acts throughout history, it's going gonna, it's gonna to follow the storyline of, I've heard some people organize it like this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, so you have God creating the world, and it is good, and man and God are in relationship together, and it is good. But as we know, for love to be real, God, you, know, you have to have a choice for love to be authentic. Uh, you could program a robot to love you, but that wouldn't be real love. So God gives man a choice, and man chooses to rebel against God. This initiates sin and death into the world. And we have a problem because now man passes that sin nature down to their children and their children down to theirs all the way down to us. But God is holy. And God's holiness means he can have no unity with sin. So we have this problem. We are sinful humans separated from a holy God. So God institutes his great rescue plan. And you have the incarnation, God in flesh. Jesus lives a perfectly sinless life, takes our sins upon himself, offers this free gift of grace to anyone who, who wants it. And that provides reconciliation between sinful humans and a holy God. Of course, we look forward to uh, Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead, essentially proving true everything he said about himself, his ascension into heaven, his, his coming return, his second coming, which is in the future. And then there'll be this final judgment where everyone who's ever lived will go to their eternal destination. And for those who love God and want him, they'll get, to, they'll get what they want. They'll get to be with God forever. But for those who have rejected him, they'll get what they want in a place called hell forever. And so that's just the sort of broad flyover of the historic Christian gospel. Now, progressive Christians, the thought leaders, deny virtually every point that I just laid out. And this is why in my book, I argue that this isn't just a group of Christians who are changing their minds on some social policies or just changing their minds on some politics or embracing more of an authentic, messy faith. This, that's not what we're talking about. This is a different religion. This is why I titled my book, Another Gospel, because they're denying the the narrative arc of God's redemptive acts throughout history so if you have creation we don't have time to get into the progressive view of creation but many progressive Christians hold to a view called panentheism which is the view that God incarnates creation much like a hand fits into a glove and so therefore you all have this divine spark within you all created matter has this this divinity within it so so we just need to realize that divinity we need to lay hold of that universal Christ consciousness it's sometimes called well you can see right from the start how this is setting up this narrative arc in a very different direction. So in progressive Christianity, they are largely going to deny that human sin separates humans from God. On progressive Christian churches, you'll even find creeds that say the good news in caps like gospel, the good news is that you were never separated from God. So this is a view in the progressive church where they deny the doctrines of original sin and human depravity. They deny the idea that our sin nature or our sin would separate us from God.
So as we move through that narrative arc, of course, this brings us to the cross, which if you don't think you're separated from God, if you don't think you actually need salvation, uh, the, the cross then becomes this horrific uh, symbol of divine child abuse. So the idea in the progressive mindset is that uh, if, if God the Father requires the blood sacrifice of his only son, well, this implicates the, the, the moral character of God, turning him into just a divine child abuser. So you'll often hear the atonement referred to as cosmic child abuse in progressive circles. So they deny the historic view of the atonement. Well, of course, the, the resurrection of Jesus being next. You know, you can believe it or not believe it in progressive circles. There, there's a bit of both going on. But what they probably are more united on is it doesn't matter if it was physical. We can learn a lot from the story. And then uh, second coming is sort of a non-issue in the progressive church. Very often you'll hear of the second coming of Jesus referred to as maybe every time you have a transcendent experience in this life, that's the second coming. Um, and then we get to this final judgment and, and eternal destinations of heaven and hell. In the progressive paradigm, there is no hell. Now, there's going to be disparate views on what heaven is, uh, but, but the one thing that progressive thought leaders are united on is that God is not going to punish people in a place called hell. So whether you think everyone's going to heaven or if it's going to be heaven coming to earth or what it might be, um, there's definitely not going to be a place called hell. So it's largely universalistic in that sense. You can see how we trace that narrative arc, all the denials along the way, and that is what they're very united on. And so I would define, as we continue to define it, I would define progressive Christianity as a group of Christians coming up and out of the, or I should say self-proclaimed Christians coming up and out of the evangelical church who are redefining, uh, rethinking, and often uh, discarding historic core doctrines of the faith. And another way to look at it that kind of helps us understand is Historically speaking, Christians have viewed, and this, this will help us as we get into the view of the Bible, but historically speaking, Christians have viewed those people who walked with Jesus, the ones who knew him in real life, who we would call the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. These are the people who have the authority to tell us about who Jesus was. They're the ones who have the authority to tell us how we should live as Christians. They are the ones who tell us what Christianity is. This is why we consider our New Testament to be as authoritative as the Old Testament. This is why we believe the New Testament is scripture because we believe Jesus commissioned these eyewitnesses and those who knew eyewitnesses to, to write down the apostolic teaching of what Christianity is. Now, in progressive Christianity, that's kind of reversed. It's kind of flipped on its head. So in progressive Christianity, they're going to view the earliest Christians, the one who knew Jesus, who walked with him in real life, the eyewitnesses of his life, as, as being those who represent Christianity in its infancy, much like a baby that's just learning to crawl before it walks. And so we're progressing, in a sense, now you see where that word progressive is coming in. We are progressing morally, spiritually, and, and physically, so we can look back at what the earlier Christians believed, and we can analyze those beliefs but, but they're not necessarily going to be the authoritative spokespeople because they were just the first people trying to figure it out. So you can see how different the approach is to Christianity. Uh, 
Okay, so for another definition of what progressive Christianity is, we're going to go to a progressive Christian author and a blogger and a pastor. He's got a, actually got a new book coming out real soon. This is John Pavlovitz. And here's what he wrote. Progressive Christianity is about not apologizing for what we become as we live this life and openly engage the faith we grew up with. There are no sacred cows, only the relentless sacred search for truth. Tradition, dogma, and doctrine are all fair game because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity and as such are all equally vulnerable to the prejudices, fears, and biases of those it touched. Now, upon first glance, we might say, well, yeah, we agree with this, right? We want to filter every teaching that we hear, every book we read. We want to filter that through the scriptures to make sure that it lines up with the scriptures. And so you could almost read this and think that's what they're talking about. But remember what we said about the earliest sources, the eyewitnesses, the people who wrote our New Testaments. In progressive Christianity, often they're not just talking about a C.S. Lewis book or a Lifeway Bible study you might pick up. They're talking about the Bible writers themselves. So now when we read this quote through that lens, we understand they're saying truth, tradition, dogma, and doctrine. All of this stuff is fair game. The resurrection of Jesus is fair game. Uh, biblical sexuality, all of it is fair game because the people who gave us those ideas are flawed humans. And so they have biases, they have fears, they have prejudices. This is why in progressive circles, very often you'll hear people refer to someone like the Apostle Paul. And they might say, well, you know, Paul wrote what he did about women because he had these these uh, prejudices against females. Or, he, or they might say, well, he wrote what he did about homosexuality because he had sexual hangups himself. He had these biases. So we're free to disagree with Paul on that. Or as we morally and spiritually evolve, we can look back and say, yeah, I don't know if Paul really got that right. And so that's sort of the mindset of progressive Christianity. Now, if we think about the word progress, the word progress, you you might tend to think of it as a positive word, right? It's it's kind of this word that that people think, oh yeah, I want to make progress, right? I want to progress. But I just want to point out that the word progress is actually pretty neutral. You can progress in a lot of different directions. I can progress toward falling off a cliff and breaking my legs. I can progress toward something healthy or I can progress toward something unhealthy. So progress in and of itself is not necessarily good. We want to progress toward health and spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, but we don't want to progress away from biblical truth. And I think someone who really had a good idea about what was going on in the beginnings of progressivism back in the 1800s is G.K. Chesterton, and he wrote this. He said, progress is a metaphor from merely walking along a road, very likely the wrong road. Progress should mean that we are always changing the world to suit the vision. Progress does mean, just now, that we are always changing the vision. So today, uh, we're going to talk about the way that progressive Christians interact with the Bible. Now, we're not going to get to the cross or the gospel. We kind of covered the gospel already. But we'll have time tonight to go over how progressive Christians view the Bible. And this really provides the foundation for all of the beliefs that they hold, uh, but not in the way you might think. So historically speaking, let's lay the foundation with what Christians have historically believed about the Bible. Have Christians argued about 
a ton of things over 2,000 years? Absolutely. Have we disagreed on doctrines and interpretations? Absolutely. This is why we have so many denominations. But if we go back to the earliest sources, which is what we want to do when we're analyzing what historic Christianity is, because certainly if we trace through history, Christianity has gone off the rails at many points. Heresies popped up from, from the earliest times, even in the, in the scriptures themselves. We see the first council being convened because Peter and Paul, they had to figure out what was going on with the Judaizers, the circumcision party, as they called it. And so, so we know that, that we can't just pull some source out of church history and say, well, look, see, I, I have a reference from church history. We're talking about going back to the earliest sources and tracing that through. So when we go back, even though we've disagreed on so many things, maybe disagreeing about what the word inerrancy means and the finer tunings of all of these things, Christians have generally been agree in agreement, and especially going back to Jesus and the apostles, that the Bible is God's word, right? This isn't shouldn't be that controversial, that the Bible is God's word, that it's inspired by God. And because it's God's inspired word, it's authoritative for our lives. I think this is a very, very broad definition of what Christians have believed the Bible is. Because we believe it's God's inspired and authoritative word, we settle our arguments based on what scripture says. But in progressive Christianity, this is not the case. So we're going to go to one of the early emergent leaders who kind of, by the way, the emergent movement sort of morphed into progressive Christianity. This is Brian McLaren. And in his book, A New Kind of Christianity, he wrote this about the Bible. Human beings can't do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God. And that scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in scripture like fossils and layers of sediment. So what we have to understand about the progressive Christian view of the Bible, at least as it would relate to being God's word, is that I think this provides a really good metaphor to understand it, what McLaren is saying here, because he's saying essentially these scriptures that we have, these are not authoritatively God speaking to us. This is actually more just like a snapshot or like a fossil that we can dig out, we can dust it off, we can analyze and understand what people believed about God in the times and places they lived, but what they wrote wasn't necessarily authoritative for us. So to give you an example of what this would look like or how this would play out, take for example, when God commands Israel to, to pronounce judgment, not genocide, but judgment, on the Canaanite people. And this is something that that you know is troubling for a lot of people. This is this is one of the instances in the scripture where we see the wrath of God poured out on sin. Right? The Canaanites were were extremely wicked. He had God had given them hundreds of years to repent and they refused and they were continuing to abuse and oppress and um, just horrific things that they were engaged in. And so God put an end to it and he commanded Israel to go in and wipe them out. Well, in the progressive mindset, this again implicates the moral character of God. So they have a choice to make. Do we say, well, we we worship a God who would do such a thing, or can we maybe revisit this and turn it into something maybe God didn't do? And so they would say, okay, well, that wasn't really 
God speaking to Israel. That was just, you know, Israel was looking around to the pagan cultures around them. They were doing their best to figure out what Yahweh might do in that situation. There were, in the pagan cultures that surrounded them, military victories were victories for their particular God. So that was something you would do um, out of worship for your God, to, to gain honor for your God, to say our God is the best God, our God wins. And so they were just doing what the pagan cultures did, but God didn't tell them to do that. So you can see uh, the implications this has, not just for the Bible being inspired, because the, the, the text says that God commanded it. So you have to you have to either say, okay, well, they didn't get that right. That you essentially have to say, the Old Testament in particular didn't get God's nature and character right, which is often what you hear in progressive circles. In fact, um, about several months ago, there was a progressive church right here in Nashville who put out a meme that said, the Bible is not God's word. And it kind of went mini viral because people were like, what are they saying? This is a church saying the Bible is not God's word. But that's what people have to understand is that in the progressive mindset, they'll say, I have a very high view of scripture. But, it, but, in, but it's often either implicitly or explicitly, like we saw in that meme, it's not considered to be God's word, at least in its entirety, from Genesis to Revelation. So let's take another look at another view. This is of the Bible. This is uh, Richard Rohr. He is a... He's a Catholic friar, so he's a bit of a different character. Most of the leaders of progressive Christianity are coming from the evangelical church, but he's Franciscan friar. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to call him the progressive pope. His influence over the major leaders of progressive Christianity is incalculable. Virtually every highly platformed progressive Christian leader has either sang his praises, had him on their podcast, they promote his teachings. This is probably the most influential person in progressive Christianity. And I mentioned earlier how progressive Christians have a different view of creation, the view of panentheism. This is largely coming from Richard Rohr. But I want to take you to his view of scripture. Here's what he wrote. The Jewish scriptures, which are full of anecdotes of destiny, failure, sin, and grace, offer almost no self-evident philosophical or theological conclusions that are always true. We even have four often conflicting versions of the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is no one clear theology of God, Jesus, or history presented, despite our attempt to pretend there is. Now notice how if McLaren brought us to the point of seeing these scriptures as fossils, we can analyze what people believed, Rohr takes it a step further here to, to implicate the Bible as being contradictory. We have no one clear theology of God, so it's not internally coherent. It's not telling the same story from Genesis to Revelation. And so you can see how it's just sort of building upon that initial view of Brian McLaren. This is Rachel Held Evans, and she wrote a book a few years ago called Inspired. In her book, Inspired, um, she argues that we've basically been reading the Bible wrong for 2,000 years. In her introduction, she lays out three filters that she brings to the text, and those filters, and you can look this stuff up and kind of do some research on your own uh, when you have more time, but she reads the Bible now through the, uh, or at the time of the writing of this book, through the, the filters of liberation theology, 
historical criticism and feminist Bible interpretation. So this is sort of, these are all newer ways of looking at the Bible. And the reason uh, I wanted to bring her up to you is because her influence is very big as well, because uh, right after she had written her book called Inspired, um, she tragically and sadly died of uh, what I believe was an allergic reaction to some flu medication that she had taken. And it was really uh, just a tragedy. It rocked both the evangelical world and the progressive world. Um, and she left behind a husband and small children. And it was very tragic, but because her death trended on Twitter, it sent her book to the New York Times bestseller list. So now we had pastors who might have never heard of this before saying, okay, uh, you know, this this is this is something we want to read. They didn't realize maybe that this was in that realm of progressive Christianity. And so in the introduction to her book, she writes this, what business do I have describing as inerrant and infallible a text that presumes a flat and stationary earth, takes slavery for granted, and presupposes patriarchal norms like polygamy. So in the book she describes as a little girl, she, she viewed the Bible as a magic book, but then when she began to read some more troubling passages, she, she basically, throughout the book, she takes the whole book to sort of develop these ideas, but basically does come to the conclusion that you can't really consider this book to be uh, trustworthy in the sense that Christians have historically thought it to be. And of course, you know, she's making a lot of claims here. She's, she's claiming, in, in other words, the Bible's not really scientific. It's, it's anti-science. It's immoral in that it would promote something like uh, slavery and that it's sort of loose on marriage. You know, we want to say that the Bible has this neat tidy idea of marriage and it's not, it's, it allows polygamy and all of this. Well, as an apologist, of course, I believe there's answers to all of those things. I do not believe the Bible's anti-science, immoral, or uh, loose with marriage, but you know, that's for another time. We'd have to argue those things at another time. But the point is that she essentially came to the conclusion that the, we have to read the Bible in a completely different and new way. And so you can see already the implications that this is going to have for the Bible being God's inspired uh, word. Her mentor is a guy named Pete Enns, and I think that he sums up the progressive view of the Bible probably best. And in his book, The Bible Tells Me So, he sums it up like this. He says, the Bible is an ancient book, and we shouldn't be surprised to see it act like one. So seeing God portrayed as a violent tribal warrior is not how God is, but how he was understood to be by the ancient Israelites communing with God in their time and place. And so that sums up the progressive view of the Bible. Uh, I think it's fair to say whether, like I said, not every progressive Christian is going to say this explicitly, but at least implicitly by reading their material and what they have to say about the Bible, the view is that the Bible is not um, inspired by God, that it's not necessarily God's word all the time from start to finish. Um, that it's And because of those things, if you don't view the Bible to be God's uh, inspired word, well, of course, you're not going to view it to be authoritative for your life. And so, so this is sort of the foundation upon which we get so many reinterpretations, redefined doctrines, and things like this in the progressive church. Because in my view, if you can move the Bible aside, if you can kind of get rid of the Bible, then you can kind of make up your own rules. You can, you can uh, just kind of go along and, and have it your way. And I think it's, you know, people might think this is an exaggeration, but I don't 
think it is to say that in progressive Christianity, it's sort of a, a custom-made gospel. It's a, a have-it-your-way gospel. In fact, there's a there's a heavy emphasis on personal conscience within conscience within the progressive uh, Christian movement. So, so what do we do with this, right? What you know? What how do we interact with this? What's the answer to this? How do we handle this claim fundamentally that the Bible is not inspired, that it's not God's word? And by the way, not every progressive Christian is going to say that it's not inspired. Most will say that it is inspired. Um, That was Rachel Held Evans' whole thesis. Her book is called Inspired. But what often happens is they redefine the term inspired not to mean God-breathed, which is what it means scripturally speaking, um, that, that scripture is literally breathed out by God. Right. Historically speaking, we don't we're not saying that these were just human typewriters, that they went into some kind of a trance and God like overtook their bodies and dictated his word through them. Certainly we see their personalities reflected. We see their cultural contexts reflected. We see their personalities and their their grammar styles and all of that reflected in the text. But when, historically speaking, we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration, it's that the words that get onto the page, those are God's words, right? He uses those human authors, but they're God's words. And so much in progressive Christian circles, the humanity is emphasized over the divine part of the Bible. So you might hear progressive Christians say, the Bible is not a book uh, um, from God to humans, but rather it's a book that humans wrote about God. So you can see how that that view of inspiration is lowered and changed. Others will define inspiration as being something more along the lines of being inspiring. It's something that that inspires us in our spiritual walk, but again, not necessarily authoritative. So that would be my best explanation of the progressive Christian view of the Bible. But I'll close us out with this. This is what I want us to think about. This is what I want to equip us with to be able to answer this. Okay, and there's more information about this in my book. I have a whole chapter on this in my book. But the main point that I'd like to leave you with tonight is that if we're Christians, if we're Jesus followers, then our view of Scripture should be what Jesus' view of Scripture is. Now, people are free to disagree. People are free to say, look, I don't think that's correct. I think the Bible has contradictions. I think it has all these things. You have every right to believe that. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, your view of Scripture should line up with Jesus' view. And as I go into in my book, Over and over and over again, Jesus refers to the Old Testament scriptures as the Word of God. Now, Jesus did not have access yet to the New Testament. I mean, he's the author, so, but the New Testament didn't exist when he was walking on earth. So, what he was saying about scriptures would have been the Jewish scriptures. The Jewish scriptures are the same Old Testament that you have today. They were arranged in a slightly different order, but it's the same books. And so, when Jesus talked about scripture being the Word of God, this settles any debate that. There is somehow some sort of a contradiction between Jesus being the living word and the Bible being the written word. Often in progressive circles, you'll hear that that those two things pitted against each other. You know, Jesus is the word, not the Bible. Well, my answer to that is that the living word considered the written word to be God's word. So he didn't have a problem. There was no contradiction there for the living word to consider 
the Old Testament scriptures to be the word of God. And he claims that over and over and over again. In Matthew 4, when he's being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he fights that temptation by appealing to the authority of the scriptures when he says it is written. Over and over and over again, we see this from Jesus. So that's what I'm leaving you with today. That's the challenge. That's the challenge for our progressive friends. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to call yourself a Jesus follower, your view of scripture should be what Jesus was. All right. That's that's what I got for tonight. Thank you, Elisa. Wow. That was incredible. Lots of information, but thank you. I know that is really just scraping the tip of the iceberg because you have so much more knowledge. Um, as she's mentioned her book, Another Gospel, I have read it. Many at the IC um, headquarters staff has read it. So I greatly encourage you all to pick up a copy at your earliest convenience um, because she definitely dives more into what this movement is about and what people believe. And um, I hope you learned something tonight. Maybe you were believing some things that you didn't even realize, or maybe you have friends or family that are um, adhering to some of these thought patterns of progressive Christianity. So at this time, we are going to break you out into our breakout rooms as we do with the E&E training. So for the next five minutes, I'm going to ask that in your small groups, you'll have about four or five people in each group. Please discuss this question. Where have you seen progressive Christianity prevalent in your life? Is it in the media you're taking in? Um, books, podcasts, social media? Have you seen it in your friend circles or, or maybe your church circles? Um, what are you thinking about it now? What is your biggest takeaway that you have learned from um, tonight's session? And just share with those in your group what you've learned and where you've seen this prevalent in your life. So in just a moment, you are going to see a pop-up on your screen for your breakout room. So please go ahead and join that room now. And we will meet right back here in five minutes. Lisa, I'm going to ask you to stay here with us. And we have some people joining us on Facebook. And I'm going to ask Bucky to share a few of the questions that have come our way through our Facebook. Facebook community. So Bucky, go ahead and share with us some questions that have come through on your end. All right. Some of these are big, okay? Is there an accessible way to introduce a skeptical friend to biblical textual criticism? Uh, yes. Um, so I would, I think a good way to ease into that is there's a, there's a couple of debates you can look up on YouTube between Dan Wallace and uh, Bart Ehrman. So Bart Ehrman's going to be the skeptical textual critic. Dan Wallace is going to be the conservative textual critic. And I think those debates are very helpful. Um, and the reason I suggest that for easing a skeptical friend in is because sometimes if you just try to offer the, you know, the, the traditional side or the historic side and the friend just thinks you're giving them propaganda or something, but you're actually inviting them to watch both sides of the debate. And both are very capable scholars who just hold different positions on what the data all means. But the most important thing is that they actually agree on what the data is. It's just the analysis is a bit different. You can hear them parse that out on, in those debates and those are available on YouTube. Thank you. Uh, what are the best topics to discuss with someone who's deconstructing? Mm. I think what if you have a friend or a loved one who's deconstructing, I think the best topics to discuss are the ones they're interested in. I think that um, there are lots of reasons people go through deconstructions, and it's usually not just intellectual. Um, in fact, if it's only intellectual, it usually doesn't end up being a full-on deconstruction because the answers are, are just so readily available. So there's something else going on, and so I'd say do a bit of diagnosis, maybe really seek understanding, ask a lot of questions about why um why they're you know where 
why they're coming to what they're coming to. Express genuine love and curiosity um, and ask a lot of questions and don't just try to like give them a you know big truth trump or something like that. Just listen, befriend, walk with them. And if, and if there's a particular intellectual obstacle that you can help them with, you know, you, you can come in with that. But I would say just, just really show them a lot of love because a lot of people are deconstructing because of um, bad church experiences, church hurt, church abuse, things like that. And so, you know, there's like some emotional stuff that needs to happen before we can bring in, you know, like swing out with the apologetics or something. Um, is progressive Christianity bigger in America and Europe than in the rest of the world? That's a good question. Um, I do think it is right now, although it's being exported. Um, if you go, you know, it's. I think that that happened with the prosperity gospel too. It kind of started here and then we exported it. I think that's happening with progressive Christianity as well. Uh, but it's. I think it's at this point still more prevalent here, yes. How do you point out all the ancient heresies within progressive Christianity without someone just saying the Catholic Church was suppressing those? How do you point out the heresies without saying the Catholic Church was suppressed? How do you point out all the ancient heresies within progressive Christianity? I guess things that have been just rehashed so that are arguing that rebranded without someone just saying, yeah, but the those were just suppressed. Right. Those were ideas that just got like the theological winners got to shove them to the side or something. Yeah. Right. Um, well, I mean, you know, I think you go back to scripture, right? I think that all the good reformations have been back to biblical truth, right? Where as the church would become progressive, then these people are saying, no, we got to go back to what the scripture says and measure it against that. And that's really where these heresies were stamped out was, was by, um, you know, looking to what the scripture says about who Jesus was, like the Nicene, um, the Council of Nicaea is talking about the, the deity and the nature of Jesus. Um, you know, this, this is where we settle our debates. And so um, a great book on this topic is called The Heresy of Orthodoxy. Um, and it's by Michael Kruger and Andreas Kostenberger. And it's a really good uh, sort of way to, to look at you know, how all of these things developed. It wasn't just the theological winners that got to declare victory and stamp out these, you know, these people that had these other ideas. This was actually, you know, the 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 things being condemned as heresies were actual heresies, and here's why. So the heresy of orthodoxy by Michael Kruger and Andreas Kostenberger. Thanks, Elisa. We had quite a few questions come in as well um, during your training part. So thank you so much for everyone for sending in your questions. I guess I'll start with, it appears that a lot of the progressive movement is starting with um, younger, maybe millennials and Gen Zers who are very active through social media, where it's so easy to just share any thought that comes to mind or anything you believe so freely. Do you have any suggestions for Christians maybe to influence their friends um, who are having these thoughts of progressive Christianity? Yeah, I think that um, one of the thing we're seeing, things we're seeing reflected in younger generations is, and well, in not just younger generations, but older generations too, is a real lack of critical thinking. This is why I think postmodernism has come in and become so popular. You know, and if you're unfamiliar with postmodernism, you can sum it up with the phrase, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. It's this whole idea of moral relativism. And so younger people today, when they're searching something, typically speaking, 
it's not so much always that they're trying to find out what's true about reality, but they're trying to find out what they agree with. And those are two very different things. Uh, because if the if the self is the guide, um, that's the first thing that we need to address. I think that we're living in a culture where we it's you can't I mean you can just preach the gospel. Of course, the Holy Spirit can move on someone's heart with just the gospel, but often we almost have to take a few steps back and establish, does truth even exist? Is there objective truth that can be known about God? Because our culture has so convinced a couple of generations of people that, yeah, you know, to, you, you're going to go to the bank and you're going to expect objective truth to be true there. If you put money in, you want to be able to get the money out. But they've relegated things like spirituality and morality into the subjective category, where that actually belongs in the objective category. So we have to convince people, I think, of, of the nature of truth before we can really move much past uh, that into, into what is true. Because we live in a culture where even claiming to know what's true about something regarding spirituality or morality is considered kind of hostile because, you know, well, that's just true for you. you. You don't need to impose your views upon me. And that's all being informed by postmodernism. So we have to address postmodernism and try to basically convince people that objective truth exists and can be known. That's absolutely right. It seems like a lot of these questions are kind of circling back to absolute truth. And it seems like progressive Christians don't believe in absolute truth, right? They're just, they're trying to find what works for them, what's true for them, what feels good for them. And that is really our culture. Everyone wants to feel good about what they think and believe. Um, and you address this really well in your book. And you also provide many other resources of other books and podcasts that people can look into. And you talk a lot about the historical accuracy of scripture and why we can believe that the Bible is truly the word of God. So just like what you said with younger generations tend not to think critically, um, it's just a matter of, are you willing to put in the work and are you willing to find the answers? Because answers are there. And it's sad if we just become lazy and not wanting to find out the truth and just think whatever we want to think and whatever we want to believe. So again, Elisa Childers' book is Another Gospel. Highly recommend you pick up a copy at your earliest convenience. Um, she just shares so much more information that is truly helpful in our day and age. So if you want to get a hold of Elisa, you can go to her website, elisachilders.com. Um, you can listen to her podcast on there. She has great guests. She has a blog. Um, you can listen to her music. She's an excellent singer and worship leader. And so again, thank you so much, Elisa, for your time. And just for the tip of the iceberg, information that you shared with us this evening. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great to be with you all. I hope it was helpful. Yes, it absolutely was. Thank you. But as for now, you have been equipped and enabled on how to answer progressive Christianity. I hope you took some notes. I know I did. Um, so whether they're mental notes or physical notes, I hope that you truly learned something important tonight and you can go out into the world and know how to answer people with gentleness and respect. Thanks to all of you for joining us for this hour tonight. Um, but for now, I'm just going to go ahead and close us out in prayer. God, thank you for this day and for this time. Um, thank you for every single word that you spoke through Elisa to us tonight. And God, I just pray that you would open our eyes to those around us who believe um, a false gospel and a false truth. And Lord, I pray that you would open up those people's eyes and hearts to the truth of your word. It is absolute. It is true. Lord, give us patience and grace with those um, who either do not yet know you or just have a skewed version of you. 
um, help us to have gentleness and respect in those conversations and as always to never be ashamed of the gospel. So thank you for this time and I pray that you would help us to remember everything that we learned tonight. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone. You are dismissed for the rest of this evening. If you have any questions, feel free to email me or you can head over to alisachilders.com for more information and resources.